0: And that's how we were able to scale from you know under 3x hash to 23x hash very very quickly uh that works great also in an environment where the price of bitcoin is constantly growing because um you're not really worrying about your hosting cost as much um going forward though we want to be very optimized in our cost structure and so part of that has to do with lowering your operating cost Um, on a per Bitcoin mine perspective, because energy cost is energy cost. It's hard to control that other than through the efficiency of the miners that you use. And Marathon today is already one of the most energy efficient miners there is out there
1: hey everybody welcome to another episode of swan signal live i am your host sam callahan i'm the lead market analyst at swan bitcoin a bitcoin financial services firm before we get started with another great episode of swan signal live i want to bring up pacific bitcoin which is the festival that swan puts on every year in beautiful santa monica if you use the promo code signal you can get 10 percent off your tickets today and if you use bitcoin you can get an additional 21% off. That's a total of 31% off if you go to Pacific Bitcoin right now. Those tickets are fully refundable by February 1st. And so if you're just on the fence about whether you'll be able to go, there isn't that much risk just buying in those tickets right now and locking in those uh, cheaper prices. It's a great festival, so check it out. This show is brought to you by our partners powered by Marathon Digital Holdings, the most technologically advanced publicly traded Bitcoin miner and the second largest of Bitcoin out of all those publicly traded companies in North America. Marathon's primary mission is to enhance the Bitcoin network by sustainably increasing the amount of computational power or hash rate that helps make Bitcoin the most decentralized and secure monetary network in the world. And on this episode, we got a very special guest. We actually have the chairman and CEO of Marathon Digital Holdings, Fred Thiel, coming back onto the show. So, Fred, welcome. Thank you for joining us.
0: Great to be here.
1: Yeah, so I wanted to open up maybe um, the most top-of-mind uh, item right now is these ETFs that just launched. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is you've seen kind of other... Uh, investment vehicles that might have been used for Bitcoin exposure kind of starts to suffer a little bit as there's been a shuffling around. Like you see this in MicroStrategy, some of these publicly traded Bitcoin mining stocks and these ETFs, Grayscale. How are you looking at some of the performance right now and how do you see that kind of playing out in the coming weeks?
0: Well, I think you see partially it's some reshuffling. You're seeing people who had bought into Grayscale at the discount, whether it was 40% or 8% or anywhere in between, um, they sold out of Grayscale and rotated their money into other lower fee funds. Grayscale is still charging about one and a half um, points. Uh, and uh, so 150 basis points where others are charging you know, either free for the first six months or you know, somewhere between 25 mm-hmm. and, and 50 basis points. So you're seeing some rotation. Um, I think you haven't really seen institutional interest start yet. Um, that's most probably going to start coming towards the fall. Once people see these ETFs stabilize, people are still trying to figure it out. You know, normally there is a launch of an ETF for a particular commodity here. You've got all of a sudden a whole graduating class, if you would, of ETFs and people are still trying to suss out, um, you know, the pros and cons of each one. Obviously BlackRock has garnered, um, you know, a large percentage, um, as has Galaxy. so I think what we're going to see is some balancing out over time. Uh, I don't think it's really taken a lot of people who were before spot holders. Um, I mm-hmm. don't think necessarily Coinbase has lost a lot of uh, customers to these ETFs at this point yet. The whole real objective here is to attract a new class of investors to Bitcoin people who are you know either RIAs or customers of RIAs rather, um, you know institutions. Um, pension funds, 401ks, and the like, who don't want to have to deal with custodying Bitcoin. They don't want to have to deal with all of the issues of uh, holding uh, Bitcoin on exchanges or trading it. They just want to be able to buy it through their normal broker. So I think this is something that's going to take a little time. What has been very positive, though, is the volume of trading was very substantial. It's one of the most successful launches of uh, an ETF category um, in history. And if you just look at the sheer volume, Uh, it definitely exceeded the launch of of gold ETFs. Um, It's taken away also some, uh, obviously, uh, funds from the futures ETFs, but you're Mm -hmm. also seeing a whole slew of new participants uh, applying for things like uh, short ETFs. So to be able to short Bitcoin, to be able to do uh, leverage on Bitcoin, to be able to do sell calls on Bitcoin, things like that. So you're going to see now a whole... family of funds come that will allow more and more people to essentially paper trade bitcoin uh, without having to actually hold it and (laughs) uh, all that bodes well
1: so you think that bodes well i was going to ask you do you think that's a pro or a con that we're seeing these kind of derivative products start to uh, come out in the woodworks after these etfs
0: well people are looking to generate yield in different ways right you have the joe consumer or boomers like myself who maybe in their retirement account want to have some exposure to Bitcoin, if you were to go out and talk to um, RIAs, many of them would say, hey, once they're the right um, types of instruments out there, yeah, 1% allocation to Bitcoin makes sense. You, know, you can look at whether it's stuff that Fidelity has written or stuff that other investment advisors have written. Um, then as you start going kind of down or rather up the risk curve, You get people who want to trade. So, you know, they don't want to trade in and out using an ETF. They want something with a little more juice. So, they might want to use MicroStrategy because of how uh, MicroStrategy uses their balance sheet to buy and hold Bitcoin. Or they may want to invest in miners, or they may want to play the futures markets, you know, whether it's perpetual futures. So, the more variety, the more options people have, the more interest there is in the market. And the more liquidity there is in the market. The more investors it attracts, and so this is only just going to add to the liquidity. The other important factor here is it's going to make Bitcoin kind of the unassailable king of cryptocurrencies. It's going to be really hard for any other cryptocurrency to get near Bitcoin's um, attractiveness as an investment asset. I think, and it's really just going to start snowballing on itself over time. But it's going to take time. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, these things um, take a lot, <clears throat> take a while to um kind of get into systems you know you still see some brokers uh haven't quite got them in their systems you know vanguard has said they're not going to offer these etfs if you (laughs) go to uh jp morgan for example uh you have to have a conversation with somebody to get them to kind of enable this for you but over time what you're going to find is more and more of the traditional brokers uh are going to let you do this. Charles schwab fidelity they already let you do it so you know it's it's very much um open season i think for these things um but what you are seeing is as relates to the price of bitcoin you know there was a run-up in bitcoin price leading up to the um announcement then it's kind of been selling off on the news uh, part of that is also people rotating you have some people rotating out of bitcoin into eth because now they're trying to you know run up the eth uh, etf rumors and see yeah. where that goes. Uh, I personally think that uh, ETH is going to have a much harder schlog becoming approved as an ETF just due to um, Gary Gensler's perspectives on ETH not being as clear as they were on Bitcoin. Plus, there's no lawsuit driving him to do anything there. So yeah. I think that um, you know Bitcoin is going to be the king here. It's going to take a while, but I think that clearly towards the end of this year, we'll see the real impact of the ETFs.
1: I I kind of agree. I think Ethereum might have a little bit more of a struggle ahead just because there's more uncertainty around its classification, whether it's a security, whether it's a commodity. There's much more clarity with Bitcoin. And still the SEC had to be taken to court to approve these things. (laughs) So, um, you know, and you you mentioned these different broker-dealers. It seems like Vanguard was more of like a philosophical stance against Bitcoin, whereas these other Mm -hmm. ones, like you said, it just takes time for them to offer a new ETF product. And a lot of them just they need to see several months of performance before they uh, solicit it to their clients. So it just takes time, like you said. Uh, another thing that might take time to really see the true impact was the newly approved FASB rules. But I know that you're um, kind of bullish on their impact, at least long term. Um, for anyone who doesn't understand, you know, right now, the way Bitcoin's treated from an accounting perspective, it, it creates a lot of uh, You know, uh, impairments to their balance sheets, the way that it's treated. Do miners uh, have to deal with that too? I assume just because you guys are corporations, you guys have been impacted by these accounting rules. Um, What do you think is kind of the long term impacts of these changes? Well, it's only
0: good. Um, Historically, the Marathon has always had to impair its Bitcoin if the price of Bitcoin has dropped, and we've never had the opportunity to reevaluate it upwards. when the price has gone up so we are we're one of the early backers of this FASB chain change uh we're definitely going to be one of the early adopters here um and uh start using it this year uh as a way uh for reporting how we hold our bitcoin uh which also makes it very more attractive um for institutional investors because institutions need to be able to mark to market the assets that they're carrying on their balance sheets and bitcoin previously wasn't uh, an asset that allowed them to do that now they can so i think you're going to see institutions who want to hold spot bitcoin on their own balance sheet do it this way um
1: yeah the etfs Fred, obviously start, are securities. adopting those new rules like as soon as this year i know they're supposed to go into full effect like uh late december but Can you guys technically do that sooner or how does that work exactly yeah
0: my my understanding is we can start doing it uh, effectively this year um there may be an ability to report your 2023 full year numbers using this type of accounting methodology but don't take my word for it because that's not my area of expertise yeah but definitely this year awesome
1: Well, that's just another kind of tailwind potentially for the institutional adoption of Bitcoin, I would say, uh, as these ETFs kind of help reduce the barriers of entry, as well as these FASB accounting rules. Um, Let's kind of change a little bit to what you guys are doing at Marathon yourself, because you had some exciting news. You had a couple large acquisitions. You acquired two operational Bitcoin mining sites, uh, over 390 megawatts of capacity added from subsidiaries of Generate Capital. Um, congratulations on the acquisition, I guess. And, but like, why did you guys decide to do this? What was the strategy behind it and, and why now?
0: Well, part of our strategy has been to shift from our asset light model, where we only use third party hosting to Mm -hmm. go to more of a blended portfolio approach where we have kind of a mix of self mind and third party hosted, uh, using the third party approach is great when you're growing quickly because you don't have to invest any of your capital in infrastructure, you're just investing it in miners. And that's how we were able to scale from, you know, under 3x a hash to 23x a hash very, very quickly. Uh, That works great also in an environment where the price of Bitcoin is constantly growing because um, you're not really worrying about your hosting cost as much. Um, Going forward though, we want to be very optimized in our cost structure. And so part of that has to do with lowering your operating cost um on a per bitcoin mine perspective because energy cost is energy cost it's hard to control that other than through the efficiency of the miners that you use and marathon today is already one of the most energy efficient miners there is out there you know our mm-hmm. um, fleet on average is about 24 joules per tera hash which is considerably lower wow. than the industry average which is over 30. but um our operating costs at the sites because we were using third-party uh, operators, uh, you know, they were earning a margin obviously on our operations, and we needed to have the ability to really um, optimize how the miners are run on a daily basis. And as you look at kind of the tail end of 2023, you can see how our monthly performance and our efficiency at the sites where we were able to go in and tweak how operations ran dramatically increased the amount of Bitcoin we were producing. You know, In December, we produced over 1,800 Bitcoin, as an example. You know, wow. By far, the largest amount of Bitcoin ever produced by a publicly traded miner. So um, in doing these transactions, we add essentially 390 megawatts of uh, owned capacity. Uh, we're currently using about 60 megawatts of that capacity at the um, uh, site in Wolf Hollow. Um, And um, we have used historically some of the capacity at the Kearney site. But most importantly, this gives us net, essentially 330 megawatts of additional capacity, um, which we will over time fill with our miners. There are other people mining there currently. Um, And as those hosting agreements roll off, we will take those uh, shelves, if you would, and uh, make them our own. So this is all part of our roadmap to getting to 50x exahash of capacity by the end of next year um and uh, we believe that now is the time to consolidate the industry um many miners you see are out there buying miners the problem is they need to have shelves to put them on yeah and if they're developing sites those sites can take 18 to 24 months to develop you know look at riot they're still developing corsicana um and you know that is a huge site it's going to take them a couple of years to develop it um some of our other Colleagues in the industry, CleanSpark, they've ordered lots of machines. They need to have places to put those machines. Mm. Our belief is that you have to own capacity first, and then you can go get machines. And so we're very focused on buying capacity. That's what this deal was all about. 390 megawatts of additional kind of um, capacity. And you're going to see us continue to consolidate and acquire more capacity here, Um, especially after the halving, when we think a number of miners will be in trouble because the price of Bitcoin is clearly not at a place where Post having, um, miners are going to enjoy uh, good profitability, and that strain that low Bitcoin yield is going to put on those miners' balance sheets are going to mean some of them are going to have to find options as to how they're going to survive. And part of that is going to be selling the sites that they're running their miners in, possibly. Yeah. And if there are attractive deals out there, we will be an acquirer. You know, we're unique in that we have, you know, close to a billion dollars of cash and Bitcoin on our balance sheet that we can go and use to go acquire things before we have to dip into our equity. So uh, I think we're in a very good position to consolidate the industry. Our intention is to you know, continue to grow. You know, we've stated 50 hash is our goal for the end of 2025, but that doesn't mean we have to stop there.
1: Yeah, you mentioned like a lot of these miners are buying these, these ASIC machines, the most efficient ones in preparation of the halving. And you mentioned your fleet efficiency is one of the best in the industry already. It's surprising to me that you said like now is the time to consolidate because like you mentioned, I, I figured that would happen after the having where you see a lot of uh, you know these miners in trouble, they get distressed, like you mentioned. But um, you're kind of getting ahead to seem to get the capacity first, um, and in preparation. And I actually did. There was a great report from Cantor Fitzgerald um a couple months ago that looked at. Uh, you know, all the different miners kind of comparing them. And I did notice that Marathon had a substantial amount of cash on hand. (laughs) And so is that kind of a strategy like to prepare for the halving? Is that you guys want to be in a strong position to be an acquirer and you just see that as an opportunity? So you're kind of getting a lot of cash now in preparation for that? Is that the idea?
0: Well, so we run our business from a perspective of we need to be resilient, meaning we need to be able to weather whatever storm comes at us. Mm -hmm. And if the price of Bitcoin, let's just say it drops to 30,000 at the time of the halving, not many miners are going to be able to operate profitably. And how many miners have enough cash on the balance sheet to be able to survive six to 12 months, maybe 24 months before um, it becomes profitable to mine again when Bitcoin has moved back up? Uh, so you need to have a lot of cash on your balance sheet to do that because if the price of bitcoin drops the bitcoin you have on your balance sheet is going to lose value as well right and if you've just placed big orders for miners you're going to have to have cash to pay for those orders (laughs) at a time when um you know you will be uh not having a lot of cash on your balance sheet so we believe that now is the time to buy capacity because these deals take time to close and this generate deal uh was a deal that we did very quickly very efficiently you know we started working on this just before thanksgiving we closed it last week um you know that's a speed that you need a very seasoned m a team to be able to execute with and thankfully our team has a lot of experience in m a um that doesn't mean we're going to stop doing deals post to having we're just getting started the question right now is you want to buy quality sites you want to buy sites that have all the attributes that make them attractive. So for example, if I have to go and buy a site, um, no matter how low cost, that is fully occupied with somebody else's miners, and those contracts are gonna run for four years, and those miners are gonna be in economic trouble, and let's just say the power cost at that site isn't very attractive, then you know I'm not gonna want to own that site regardless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I certainly don't want to buy people's machines that are running at a site, because all those machines are old. Marathon is known for always buying machines at the bleeding edge of the technology curve. You know, we're very technology focused, we're technology fully vertically integrated, even to the extent that we helped um, and funded, you know, Orodyne, which is the US designer of uh, Bitcoin mining ASICs um and full disclosure i sit on the board of the company um you know the idea there was to design a miner that was built for industrial scale miners like ourselves where you can tweak the performance of individual asics where you can overclock underclock where you can manage them to profitability points and do things you can't do with these standard shoebox miners built by people like bitmain and others and so we think it's all about being at the bleeding edge of the technology curve but you have to be able to do that while paying you know reasonable prices but it by no means might in the market to go buy s19j pros for example today no matter how cheap because come to having they won't be profitable to operate yeah and so it's all about you want to buy the most energy efficient machines so you get the advantage of running them um, while everybody else is still on the old generation so let me give you an example if i have one megawatt of power or let's just say 20 megawatts of power, which is kind of the 1x exahash hash of capacity today using um, S19XPs, right? Operating at about 21 joules per tera hash. Mm-hmm. Um, if I all of a sudden replace those machines with machines running at 15 joules a tera hash, which is essentially what the new Auradyne 3 nanometer machines that'll be um, available at the end of this year will operate at, I can increase my capacity by a third without ener- using any more energy, wow, right? That third? same 20 megawatts is now, yeah, because wow. it goes from 21 joules per tera hash 15, to 15, 15 right? Yeah. So now I've got an extra essentially six megawatts of power that I can use, which is roughly a third, right? Well, yeah. So, right? So now I can grow my capacity without increasing my energy consumption, which means my cost basis isn't going up in my mining and so you know a lot of people get this wrong they think oh, i'll just buy the lowest cost machine and mine with that it's not how it works you need the most energy efficient machine that yeah. you can get out there and um you know we're seeing a whole generation shift think about it the s19j pro 30 joules per tera hash came out in 2020 2021 right it was available for shipment mm-hmm. then the xp came out it went from 30 joules of tera hash down to 21. The XP started shipping. Marathon was one of the first buyers of that. We placed an order for 70,000 machines at the end of 2021. Those are all fully deployed. Um, now you have the T21s, the S21s that are you know operating at 19 or 17 joules per tera hash. Those will be delivered to people over the course of this year. Well, the Auradyne machines will be delivered towards the end of this year, and they're at 15 joules per tera hash. And at the end of the day, in a tight environment, it's the miners who have the um, who are in the bottom 25 percent of cost to mine a Bitcoin that will always survive. And so, our goal as a miner is to be in that bottom quartile cost-wise, because our technology is so good, we're able to optimize things by running our own pool, and our pool outperformed all of the FPPS pools in December. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't bring in third parties to that, and you know it's running our own firmware all the way down to the bottom of the technology stack.
1: So efficiency is the name of the game, is what you're saying in, in Bitcoin mining. And um, how, how you know those machines turn over quickly, and part of that's like Moore's law, and some people think it's kind of slowing down as it's getting harder and harder uh, to fit these transition transistors on there. Is it double them every single time? Um, do you see that slowing down over time in terms of the new mach- new powerful machines, more efficient machines coming on the market? Or is that not what you've seen in the last couple of years, like you mentioned? like How do you see that playing out?
0: Well, so you know, use the numbers I just mentioned. So the S19J Pro was 30 joules a tera hash. Uh, mm-hmm. Two years later, the XP came out. That was at 21 joules a tera hash. So that's a 38% reduction, right? Then the S twenty one came out, which is seventeen joules a tera hash. So that's, you know, about a fifteen percent reduction. Uh, now you have the Auradine machine at fifteen joules a tera hash, right? That's a further fifteen percent reduction. Um, so you're starting to get to a place where the there's kind of diminishing returns. And right. what becomes more important then is the total cost of ownership. And this is where the Auradine machines um and i know it sounds like i'm touting their horn but i am um are so good it's you can run these machines and target a profitability point right so you can essentially um say hey i want to maximize my profitability the operating system of these machines will then take into account the current price of bitcoin your cost of energy and the global hash rate and will tweak asic by asic the underclock, overclock so that it maximizes profitability, all without the operator having to do anything. Wow. Now, that lowers your cost of ownership. Other benefits, you know, the um, miners that we deployed, for example, in our UAE site in Abu Dhabi, this is a full immersion system um, that's running in 115, 120 degree Fahrenheit average temperature during the summertime. It's very humid, 95% humidity. How do you operate efficiently there? Well, when we did our pilot, we had one megawatt worth of miners running for over a hundred days before an engineer had to open a container to go look at them.
1: Just completely so that by itself. Ma-
0: It just ran all by itself. So that means that you need very few people at these sites to run them. So that's two two important takeaways there. One, you can run very large sites with very few people. And more importantly, you can also run very small sites economically because you don't need any people. Mm. And so that opens up alternatives that let you operate and grow your capacity without having to look for utility scale hundreds of megawatts, right? It's hard to find sites that have two, three, 400 megawatts of capacity. They take time to build. They take time to permit. They take time to get approved by the utility. But there are lots and lots of sites that you could run that are... 10 megawatt, 20 megawatt. And then when you start looking at energy harvesting, which is another thing that we're doing, where we're taking methane gas, we're taking biomass, converting it into electricity, converting that electricity into Bitcoin, then using the heat from that Bitcoin production and feeding it back into an industrial process. Now you start getting to a point where you have nearly zero cost energy. And this becomes really interesting. Now, granted, it's a lot harder to scale a bunch of one, two, three, four, five megawatt sites Into a gigawatt of capacity. But over time, it makes you the lowest cost operator in the industry. And so I think that's what you're going to start seeing in the Bitcoin mining world is you'll see the utility scale guys operating these very large sites. And then you'll start seeing more and more of these energy harvesting solutions where people are heating buildings with Bitcoin miners, they're heating factories, they're pre-treating parts of industrial processes using the heat, um, and then getting paid for that. And that subsidizes their energy costs, which makes their cost to mine Bitcoin even lower. So I think it's a very exciting time of transition in the industry. We're going to see much more real industrialized machines being built, not these shoeboxes anymore, but blade-based machines where you have tanks that are uh, have high density. And uh, it's really exciting what we're going to see over the next two or three years.
1: It sounds like it. Sounds like a ton of innovation and just get. To, I'm, I get excited thinking about these things running by themselves with basically no labor costs and basically free energy. What that means, uh, if you just kind of think far out, it's it's mind blowing. Honestly, what that could enable. I uh, <laughs> I wanted to bring up something which you know you you brought up the the site that you build your building at the uae uae uh with zero two backed by abu dhabi sovereign wealth fund largest uh, first large-scale immersion bitcoin mining operation but there's been some fud out there recently that the average bitcoin transaction wastes a full swimming pool of water and from my understanding water is pretty scarce there have you seen that uh, new fud come out from that research report about bitcoin waste water and well, I, my, well, what would so, you say of that? <laughs> <I> was,
0: <laughs> well, for one thing, for that to be true, you have to use water in your Bitcoin mining. We don't use water. <laughs> Our systems sit in, in uh, self-contained tanks of oil. The oil isn't lost or consumed in any way, right? It's a fluid that right. um, is pumped around. So think about how an automobile radiator works, right? You've got a sealed closed loop system where Radiator fluid is floating around the engine, cooling it, and then it goes into a radiator that you know, um, essentially cools the heat, and then it goes back into the engine. That's the way immersion systems work. We don't use water. We don't use water cooling at all in these systems. This is 100% self-contained closed-loop oil-based systems. Um, traditional air-cooled mining sites don't use water either unless you have a water wall. And we don't use water walls in any of our sites, so you know we have no water consumption at our sites other than the drinking water and uh, the water in the potties that the um, the people on site <laughs> use. So, um, <laughs> you know, you can't measure that on a transaction basis,
1: right? So, yeah, for anybody who's wondering about that fud, I thought that'd be a good uh, answer to look look back, and maybe we'll clip that. I um I wanted to bring up the concept of decentralization mining. I think it's the most important. Um, one of the most important topics to discuss we just saw actually the texas grid um come under pressure from some kind of storm and 25 percent of the the hash rate actually turned off a lot of them have these uh, power purchase agreements where you know they have uh with the utility provider they have contracts in place where they turn down their miners give the power back to the grid in times where the, the grid needs it um but 25% was kind of shocking to me about just how much of that hash rate has moved to Texas. And it's better, you know, after the China ban, I, I, I think it's better because like property rights are respected in the United States of America, and there are benefits, but still 25% seem like a large number. Um, are you concerned at all about the concentration of hash rate um, in the United States or just in general? Um, you know, what are your thoughts around this topic?
0: Um, so a handful of things for one thing, I don't think it's 25% of global hash rate came off. It's 25% of us hash rate, possibly.
1: Got Um, it. You gotta realize the
0: the U S in total represents under 40% of global hash rate. So what you would be saying if 25% of global hash rate came off almost over half of the U S would have shut down. And there's a lot of mining outside of Texas. I mean. As a miner, we're pretty diversified. We have Texas, we have North Dakota, we now have Nebraska, we have UAE, we have Paraguay as well. Um, I don't think there are many U.S.-based public miners that are as uh, diversified in their locations as we are either domestically or internationally. Um, And that's by, you know, uh, on purpose. We're purposely diversifying our locations. Uh, Yes, there is a lot of capacity in Texas, but that's because Texas is, is a very attractive market because of how it works that you can bid for power that you can get paid for shutting down all of those benefits you've got to realize the alternative for the grid operator when they have a lot of intermittent power which is solar and wind you get these winter storms when it rains and there's wind the water freezes on the um, propellers of the uh, wind turbines and obviously the sun doesn't shine so they have huge power drops because you know Upwards of 30 plus percent of the power in Texas comes from these sources. So they need a demand response system that works well. The alternative would be that they either have to turn on a bunch of peaker plants. And oh, by the way, I believe Berkshire Hathaway is an owner of very many peaker plants in Texas. Or you'd have to have huge battery systems. The peaker plants only are in business when they can charge $5,000 a megawatt for power, um, which is what happens in these peak times. And battery guys, you know, if you're investing in batteries, you're spending almost as much on the batteries as you do to build a whole solar farm, uh, which is upwards of, you know, $2 million a megawatt. So, Bitcoin miners are the ideal solution for the grid because the grid operators don't have to pay anything for the ability to turn off the miners other than they provide a subsidy in the form of a lower cost of energy. Uh, And so, as a miner, If you agree to curtailing, then you're most probably, you know, entering into an agreement where you're most probably curtailing up to a max of 20% of the time. And in return for that, you get a lower price of energy. Um, And what that gives the grid operator is, hey, I can shut off a gigawatt of demand instantly. I mean, within 10, 15, 20 minutes and get, keep my grid balanced um because my generation capacity is falling off and then as that generation capacity comes back on <coughs> or excuse me or as demand drops you now can come back online so mm-hmm. um it is a very unique model and in uae we do the exact same thing we have a relationship with ewick, which is the primary energy utility and they have this asymmetry in their demand uh, summertime they need four gigawatts in the wintertime they only use one gigawatt but they have to keep using the power generation because of how they desalinate water it uses heat from the energy generation and so in the summertime when they've had peak times they're now able to call us and say hey we need you to curtail they operate a nuclear power plant and they operate gas-fired plants neither of the two are easy to regulate the amount of energy they produce on a short-term basis. If you know days in advance, yes, you can increase or decrease the power generation. But if you all of a sudden have a transformer somewhere down the line that goes, and now you have uh, an imminent power outage, the only way to increase supply quickly is to curtail demand somewhere. And so Mm -hmm. we provide that curtailment. In UAE, um, which has been very helpful to the grid operator there, so you know Texas has that unique nature, the way the power markets work. Um, in Nebraska, um, there's you know limited need for curtailment. When it, there's a requirement, we curtail. In North Dakota, where we're operating primarily on wind energy, um, same thing. You know we curtail uh, when and as needed. And uh, you know I think any miner who is a good corporate citizen. Um, is gonna do that. Um, but we do provide a very valuable service to stabilizing grids. That's, you know, the key message here.
1: Got it. Now, yeah, I always thought it was you, a cool use case. Yeah.
0: Uh, the answer, the second part of your question, um, you know, the second largest mining country in the world is Russia today and growing. Why? They have lots of nuclear capacity with no offtake. And so um, sovereign nations today are very interested in mining Bitcoin. Why? the US weaponized the US dollar. And so if you as a sovereign want to hold your reserve assets, you don't have many options. The US dollar historically has been the reserve currency of the world because it's a safe haven and you could trust the US to not mess with your dollars. That's not the case anymore. If you're a commodity producer in the Middle East, for example, there's risk that the US may put you on an OFAC list. And then what do you do? Now you can't move money. They may Take your reserves uh, like they did with Russia, and I'm not saying they're going to do that with the Middle Eastern country necessarily. But um, you know, you can look at all these central banks that have been buying gold as a way to hold their reserves instead of dollars. Yeah, Uh, record amounts. Go Google this. Record amounts. And so now you also have sovereign nations looking at Bitcoin as an alternative to the dollar. The problem is, if you're not mining your own Bitcoin and you don't have your own pools, then the U.S through its OFAC process could block you from accessing markets and getting your transactions mined, you know, look at what some of these pools out there are doing now, where they're being rumored of uh, filtering based on OFAC compliance. And, you know, full disclosure, Marathon had a pool operating three years ago where we had that capability, uh, which we shut down um, because there was such an outcry from the industry. So the risk for censorship is very high. And so you see nations. Uh, like UAE, who want to operate their own Bitcoin mining, who want to have their own custody, who want to have their own pools, etc., because it gives them sovereignty over their assets, just like most Bitcoin owners today want to have sovereignty over their financial assets. And so one of the key driving purposes behind Bitcoin is self-sovereignty. Well, nations want that. And so now you're starting to see nation states want to mine specifically for that reason. You know, Bhutan. 200 megawatts of power, right? Yes. And growing, oh, you know, Middle East, lots of countries. They're very interested in it. Russia is doing it. you're now starting to see countries in Africa looking at it. You're starting to see nations in Central and South America. Uh, so I think what you're going to continue to see is more and more, um, diversity in who's mining, you're going to continue to see hash rate grow because there are people who don't necessarily have a financial profit interest in Bitcoin mining, but have a strategic interest in Bitcoin mining. And they're going to continue to invest in mining. Plus, they control oftentimes their own electricity costs, so they can essentially um, mine for free. Mm-hmm. So I think you're going to continue to see global hash rate grow. You're going to see capacity growing on a global basis. You'll see the the U.S. share of global Bitcoin mining decrease over time. Um, the other thing you're going to see is a growing... Um, number of micro miners and this is gets back to the energy harvesting thing i mentioned earlier you know the ability to mine bitcoin and heat a building at the same time mine bitcoin and grow shrimp mine bitcoin and heat hothouses you know it doesn't need a lot of mining capacity to do that right you're paying for the energy anyway why not mine bitcoin about 95 percent of the heat that uh, or energy that you buy to plug a miner in is converted into heat when you mine Bitcoin, if you can capture that heat and use it for something else, you know, think about it, people pay a lot of money to heat buildings, people pay a lot of money to heat greenhouses, there are industrial processes that need low grade industrial heat for food processing, other things like that. Um, So there are lots of opportunities for people to use small capacity Bitcoin miners uh, to heat things. And mm-hmm. so you're going to see a growing number of a growing amount of hash rate. It'll be very slow at first, but over time you'll see it grow um, to be a significant share of mining that is micro miners doing simple things like heating. Where mining Bitcoin is really a byproduct of what they're really doing, and that's something mm-hmm. I'm super excited about because that that there you can really talk about decentralization of Bitcoin mining.
1: Yeah. Micro miners, I like that. There's that Reason TV documentary, I don't know if you saw it, of the, the bathhouse in, mm-hmm. in New York. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. So that heat reuse, I mean, the the possibilities there are endless, like you mentioned. I, you know, I love what you just said in terms of these nation states beginning to get into Bitcoin mining and how they control their electricity costs. It's not it doesn't really bother them uh, to a loss when they're doing it for geopolitical reasons, um, to protect themselves from, you know, seizure and and um, you know their assets getting confiscated essentially, and and I I just think about are we seeing is that the kind of the answer to some of the centralization at the pool level is like should we see more pools start to develop uh, from these nation states who want to use their own pools is that kind of one possible outcome here that could improve the cent- the decentralization at that mining pool level and and how, why haven't we seen that already where we see these like You know larger like russian pools and other things come online so
0: um there are lots of reasons for you know one is you as a miner need to have enough capacity um such that you're evening out the luck effect if you would uh, Mm -hmm. of mining uh to operate your own pool why do you point your miners at f2 or at foundry or one of those pools well because they pay you just based on your contribut- contribution of hash rate, right? It's an FPPS pool. So I point an exahash hash of capacity at that pool. I'm going to get whatever my pro rata share of the winnings of that pool are. The problem is you're sharing with everybody else. And so if you're a big enough miner, you actually want to have luck um, factored into your winnings. So if you think about when all these ordinals transactions happened in May and then again in November and early December when we mined all these bitcoin because we operate our own pool we got to keep 100% of the odd blocks that had all of a sudden six bitcoin in transaction fees, seven bitcoin mm-hmm. in transaction fees in addition to the block subsidy. Had we been in an FPPs pool, we would have been sharing that across the pool. Oh okay. And so it, you know in our case our pool outperformed um, you know foundry or f2 by a considerable percentage in the case of many miners they want the cash flow because they have to pay electrical bills so they want a check essentially they want to get bitcoin every day from their pool operator so they can you know know exactly what okay. they're going to get so they can pay their bills as you look um, under the covers a little bit more what you'll find is there are miners who essentially got their operations financed uh, and then pools who got their operations financed by deep pocketed um, operators in the space. Uh, And if you look at kind of the flow of Bitcoin from many pools, you'll see that Ant Financial, for example, has been financing many of these pools because FPPS pools have to pay out based on pro rata share. Uh, regardless, even if the luck factor runs against them, and so for oh, yeah. many pool operators, it's a very risky business to be a third party pool operator. Um, so that's kind of the reason why I think that you know you're gonna yeah. start seeing more and more people start mining with their own pools, but they have to have scale to do it, and so you know how many people have more than ten x a hash of capacity uh, up until recently, there weren't very many people that had that type of capacity,
1: yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, when I think about the consolidation that might occur over the coming year too, I I think even less people will probably be able to have it, right? Um, So it's interesting. I think it's like a a topic that should be talked about a lot in terms of, uh, you know, how do we further decentralization, decentralize this network at every single level? I mean, you brought up, you know, being an ASIC manufacturer in the United States. That's another kind of choke point in terms of centralization at the uh, ASIC manufacturer level. And so it's a good thing. It's a good thing to come up with these solutions. I guess is what I'm saying. I was wondering, um, you know, you brought up how you, you know, acquired those uh, new operating sites and as a way to kind of diversify your operations. Um, I've heard other miners kind of try to diversify their revenue streams by going into other things like AI and and other sources of computation. Um, are you guys planning to do anything like that uh, over at Marathon, or, or are you just strictly You know, Bitcoin focused.
0: So, um, we our philosophy at the high level is we're asset allocators, right? So, we have uh, capital provided by our shareholders, and we need to be really good custodians of that capital. And so, we need to invest it in the things that we think are generate the best return for our shareholders. Um, We have studied AI. Um and uh, you know, uh, being a boomer here, uh, you know, I've been in tech for 40 years. Um I started my career writing software on punch cards in banks uh on old IBM 360 mainframes, oh, cool. which gives you an idea of how old I am. Um <laughs> granted I was in high school at the time, but um and I have developed technology that was uh, you know Ethernet technology that was core for the original internet build-out and the build out of all these. PC-connected LANs and WANs, uh, built token ring technology, built switching technology, um, saw the internet grow, was involved in ad tech, game tech, all these industries as, as they've grown. Wow. And the one thing, uh, and I was a big you know, contributor to some of the early IoT stuff over 20 years ago. Um, the one thing I've learned is never invest in the first generation. And what you have going on in the AI space relative to data centers today is you have this race to build capacity to do LLMs, large language models, um, and inference. And what people are doing is they're taking the state of the art processor and building these data centers around these GPUs. So the H100s, typically the NVIDIA uh, product. And so the challenge with Um, these HPC AI sites, is that the GPUs need to be interconnected. So if you have a cluster of GPUs, every GPU needs to be connected to every other GPU for it to work properly. It's the way the brain works, right? You have neurons that connect everything. And that means that you can't build a field of containers that's flat because the distance from one container at one end to the container at the other end is going to be longer than the two containers next to each other. And so you need symmetrical connections, same length. And so you Mm -hmm. want to build these data centers almost like spheres. And so it's like a three-story building that's three stories wide, kind of, right? That's the ideal way to build them. They're very symmetrical. Yeah. So building a data center for AI is 8 to 12 times more expensive than building a data center for Bitcoin mining. The only thing they have in common is they both need lots of energy. Period. (laughs) End of story. Right. The other thing is the H 100s. Now let's talk about the technology curve. H 100 was the hot machine, you know, 12, 18 months ago. Everybody's ordering them. Right. What does NVIDIA do? They launched the H 200. Right. Look at what the hyperscalers are doing. They're not buying H 200s. They're on to the next generation. A lot of them are developing their own systems. So if you're going to operate a data center for AI, you've got to be thinking about, 99.99999% uptime five nines right you've got to be thinking about how do you cool these things you can't immerse an h100 or an h200 in oil you've got to liquid cool them by cooling the individual chips now you are using a lot of water by the way um (laughs) if you then start looking at the operation of these sites you know it's very it's very people intensive this stuff breaks all the time and you've got to have a really fat internet connection, right? Because, you know, it's big data. This is high velocity, high volume, high resolution data that's got to get connected here. It's not a couple of Starlinks on a remote site somewhere that's burning methane. You know, <laughs> these are totally different businesses. And so I think any Bitcoin miner who says we're going into AI and we're going to be the best at this, um, it's going to be a flash in the pan because they don't have the capex to be able to finance machines where the obsolescence is going to be every 12, 18 months for the next five years. So I, you know, I wish them luck. I wish them luck, but uh, you know, I've been in this industry long enough, you know, the tech industry long enough to know that uh, if you uh, get involved in the hype curve, you're going to crash into the trough of disillusionment before the business really starts working and we're going to see so many improvements in vector databases which increase the efficiency of these systems by a hundredfold. which means guess what you need a hundred times less compute power all of a sudden to do the same thing and mm. as this technology curve continues to advance look at what happened to pcs right what was the way that intel built their business they invested in software companies that made software that needed cpus to be more and more powerful because otherwise there was no need to buy new cpus Mm. what is nvidia's business model it's selling chips and software how do they sell more chips and software where they find new ways to sell new chips and software which means the people installing a lot of this stuff it's not going to last them five years it's not going to last them eight years they're going to be obsolete in 18 months yeah, and the capex, kind of like lot. I said, is eight to twelve times more expensive than Bitcoin miners. So I think that you really need to be careful um, as a Bitcoin miner about going down the rabbit hole of HPC, because uh, it's going to be a very short-term project for you. I think.
1: Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know any uh, anything about like the differences between the businesses or you know those details. So thanks for sharing that. I, that's fascinating. So. Um, I I wanted to just end with just some general like Bitcoin uh, over the next 12 months. I mean, you you mentioned that that Mara is one of the largest holders of Bitcoin itself. So I have to think you guys are at least um, partially positive on the future direction of the price. Uh, (laughs) um, What do you think about, what do you think about the 12 months? Because I I mentioned FASB, mentioned ETFs. um, There's a, there's a macro backdrop that one could argue is, is supportive of asset prices. If the fed does cut rates, what, what, what are you looking at over the next 12 months with just Bitcoin's price? So I think um, you've got a, a number of really good tailwinds.
0: You've got obviously FASB, you have the ETF. Um, you have the halving, which granted, it's more of a psychological shock than anything else. Uh, you know, as a supply shock, you're talking about going from 900 Bitcoin a day to 450 Bitcoin a day. Um, you know, There are millions of Bitcoin traded a day. So that supply change isn't going to really do a whole lot, but it's the psychology of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's there are only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin. We've mined almost 20 million. The amount of Bitcoin actually in circulation today, liquid on exchanges, um, you know, is somewhere between 1.8 million to 3 million, depending on the day. And what's going on with the ETFs, that liquidity will increase likely. But realize, a lot of these ETFs, once the Bitcoin goes in there, if somebody's buying shares and somebody is selling shares of the ETF, that Bitcoin doesn't have to circulate anywhere on the blockchain. It's just going to stay in the ETF, like in a corporate wallet at an exchange. And so, you know, there will still be very tight supply. So between all of those tailwinds, there will be demand increase and price will go up. And as you start getting sovereigns who want to hold more Bitcoin, You know, we talked about they want to mine Bitcoin so that they can get their transactions processed. But, you know, listen, there are only about a million Bitcoin left to be mined between now and 2140. So no sovereign is going to build up a whole wealth fund by mining their own Bitcoin. They only want to mine Bitcoin as a way to transact and be able to to transact Bitcoin and process transactions. And they are going to have to go in the open market and buy Bitcoin. (laughs) So I think as you add up all these things, there's a reasonable. Uh, you know, logic that supports an argument where by the end of this year we should hopefully, and this is my personal opinion, it's not Marathon's official opinion, and this is not financial advice. Um, my personal opinion is that I think we will exceed the prior all time high by the end of this year, there'll be a sell off, uh, profit taking, um, and then you'll see by the end of next year we'll exceed that all time high by potentially 2x, uh, Mm. and after that who knows what's going to happen you know bitcoin (laughs) may repeat its traditional cycles and go into a bear market or we may be done with bear markets and it's really a macro environment where it's all about global liquidity to your point you know global liquidity will increase this year um i don't think we're going to see inflation fully tamed this year i don't see the fed doing max maybe three rate cuts uh you're not going to see recession across the broad economy you'll see pockets of recession you know the pmi is down for example but consumers are still spending uh you're seeing housing coming back now as interest rates are you know real interest rates are dropping so i think the economy is going to be a mishmash of signals uh, but global liquidity will increase china's about to do a uh, trillion uh won, uh liquidity injection You're going to see Europe cut rates faster because their economy is in much worse shape than uh, the U.S.'s economy is. Uh, And you're going to continue to see uh, disinflationary um, areas of the economy, energy sector, for example. But you also have geopolitical risk, right? You've got all the craziness going on in the Middle East. You've got stuff still going on in Ukraine and Russia. Um, And you have the risk for China Taiwan. So all of that means that the U.S. fiscal spending is going to have to increase you know there's nobody putting up you know look at what Washington the um, you know the the Senate just approved today a spending bill that the house will likely approve uh, that is 1.6 trillion I think it's a stopgap measure uh, you know that fiscal spending in the US is out of control and when you've got 33 trillion dollars of national debt that oh by the way in Bill Clinton's day he was the last president to have a surplus in the budget the national debt in bill clinton's day was five trillion (laughs) dollars right it's 33 trillion dollars today right the general accounting office estimated at the end of bill clinton's term that if that budget surplus continued the national debt would be paid off in 15 years yet today it's ballooned to 33 trillion dollars There's only one thing the U.S. can do to control that debt. And that is either stop spending, which doesn't get anybody elected, or do something that lowers the value of the dollar, that lowers the cost of servicing that debt. And what does that bode well for? That bodes well for Bitcoin.
1: It bodes well for scarce assets and nothing's more scarce than Bitcoin. I agree completely. Like The idea that, you know, one of the biggest bear cases for Bitcoin is this austerity measures. It makes me <laughs> more bullish because it's really hard to see these politicians Sunday like waking up all of a sudden and saying, oh my gosh, look at these deficits that were, this is crazy. We got to cut this back. It's actually the opposite that we're seeing. That they're, they're continuing to run multi-trillion dollar deficits. It's hard to have a recession when they're still keeping these liquidity conditions like this. And it's only, you know, it's probably likely gonna increase. We just saw Christine Lagarde actually just say she expects to cut rates by summertime. Um, the market's now expecting six cuts by the Fed. You know the market's been wrong before on that stuff, but you know it just seems like the messaging has changed over the last about month. So I think you're right. I think you're right. I think we're in for a couple of wild years. Price predictions are you know impossible to uh, you know be accurate with, but um, it is exciting to think about where this goes, and it's hard not to see Bitcoin reaching all time highs over the next couple of years given these conditions. Fred, um, thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing your expertise with this stuff, especially on the energy side. Uh, It's always helpful for myself and the listeners to kind of hear from experts like you. Um, Where can they find uh, some of your work or if they want to learn more about Marathon Digital Holdings? uh, What do you want to point listeners to? So um, for Marathon, it's
0: Mara.com, M-A-R-A.com. And by the way, uh, keep a lookout. We're about to release a a short film called Path to 23 Exahash, which kind of tells our story in video form, which uh, was a lot of fun to put together. And I think uh, the audience will uh, appreciate watching that. So that'll be released on the 23rd of January. Um, So keep a lookout for that. You can reach me on Twitter at FGTHIEL or on Telegram at the same address at FGTHIEL
1: awesome well thanks fred thanks again um i guess have a wonderful uh hopefully you know weekend coming up i know you got another day left here but uh thanks for coming on really appreciate it and i will uh, hopefully see you soon
0: absolutely look forward to it thank you very much thanks
1: well i always love talking to fred uh he always brings a very um you know, intelligent approach to his his uh perspectives on the markets, as well as you know, he's an operator. He's in he's on the ground. He's building. He's a he's a leader of a one of the largest publicly traded Bitcoin mining companies. And you don't get there without uh, being an experienced operator as well as leader and you know he talked about his past through you know the technology industry through decades and so to, to have him in bitcoin i think speaks volumes to this technology to have somebody like him who has worked in all these different groundbreaking technologies and he's decided to spend his time and energy on this new monetary technology that is bitcoin so thank you fred for coming on i hope you guys enjoyed it like subscribe comment let me know what you think. Another uh, really exciting episode lined up. We're going we're gonna to look at the Bitcoin venture capital world with a couple of VCs next week. So I'm really excited about that. And so tune in at the Swan Signal Live next week. I was your host, Sam Callahan, and I am out. Thank you.